Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's it like to write about the Denver Broncos and the NFL? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On episode 82 of The Bridge. <laughs> Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 48 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show on Friday nights, both on iTunes under The Bridge Sports Podcast or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact this show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. The Yankees-Red Sox rivalry has taken a little bit of a hiatus in the past several years, but this season has brought forth a couple of anecdotes to hopefully begin bringing it back to a simmer. The latest anecdote came from stealing signs, which has long been a baseball tradition, but has never involved Apple products before, at least not from ones that aren't found on trees. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. The Yankees and Red Sox once had the most heated rivalry in sports. And while both teams certainly remain foes, the hatred has simmered into a strong dislike in recent years. The young talent found on both teams was most likely prepping for their holy communions when the rivalry last held its strongest heat. But some signs at this stage of the season point to a rekindling in the near future. Earlier this month, Yankees pitcher CC Sabathia didn't take kindly to the Sox trying to bunt on him in the early part of the game. Though the Red Sox would argue that making Sabathia lumber toward a baseball is one of the best ways to get a runner on base. That same series in Boston became the subject of further scrutiny 
as it was recently announced that the Red Sox were reportedly stealing signs from Yankees catchers and have done so to other teams as well. Sign stealing has long been part of the game of baseball, a tradition placed in the same category as hard slides, policing the game from the pitcher's mound, and taking foreign substances. But as the technology of the world has advanced, so too has the temptation of using those advancements to try and get the upper hand of an opponent. Gone are the days of a keen eye from a bench coach or binoculars and telescopes in the outfield. The most recent scheme that caught the Red Sox red-handed included the use of video and an Apple Watch. While this might be the first recorded evidence of finding any use for an Apple Watch, it also opens some eyes to the extent that some teams go to to decipher an opposing team. According to the story from the New York Times, Red Sox trainers were sent in signal calls to their watches from replay personnel, before then relaying the signs to the players. One video sent to Major League Baseball reportedly showed a trainer looking at his watch, then signaling to a runner, who would then signal something to the players at bat. The chain of events is the most brilliant deliverance of signals seen in Massachusetts since Paul Revere's Midnight Ride, though even the lantern holders were more discreet than the Red Sox were. When questioned, the Sox brass did admit to wrongdoing, though quickly deflected some blame to the Yankees, who they also accused of stealing signs by using the Yes Network cameras. While stealing signs does not break baseball's written or unwritten rules, using electronic devices to do so does, and a potential punishment might be coming to Boston from the commissioner of the MLB. In sports, you're either cheating or you're not. The discussion of stealing signs in particular to those in the game of baseball is a laughable one but becomes a little bit more serious when it involves getting caught or when the team is actually winning. If anything, the latest gate incident to hit Boston could be another piece of kindling to help reignite one of the best heated rivalries the game has ever seen. Or could bring forth a new ballad for the Red Sox faithful to sing during their seventh inning stretch as created by the ringer. Making signs, reaching out, Apple Watch, watching you. I'm John Lund for Sports News, read like real news. Let's take a quick break to change up our signs. 
When we come back, we'll talk to a Denver Broncos columnist about the upcoming season and other happenings in the National Football League. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text in to the bridge at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to The Bridge. This week we want to know, what NFL storyline are you most excited about and why? Well, the NFL regular season has finally arrived with the defending Super Bowl champion New England Patriots hosting the Kansas City Chiefs on Thursday night football to kick things off. Which means it's time to also plan your fantasy football lineups accordingly. And can we just say how damn expensive this time of the year can be with that? If you're in multiple fantasy football leagues or throwing down any shekels for the over-unders on teams for this season, the wallet takes quite a hit. That said, may you all find success with any eventual payouts that may befall you in the months or weeks to come. Here would also be a great time to do a live read for any of those NFL, we're not actually a gambling site websites, but unfortunately the show has not become that popular quite yet, though we're hopeful to get there. And now that the show will be taking its focus toward more NFL-centric shows, why not kick that off for this show and prep for week one of the NFL season with this week's guest, Ian St. Clair, who not only has one of the best last names we've had on the show, but also does a great job covering the Denver Broncos as a columnist for Mile High Report and co-host on the Mile High Report radio podcast. Ian got his start in the newspaper business before switching gears into the internet marketing world, all while still finding time to keep the Broncos in mind. So we'll chat about getting into riding and some of his career before diving into the latest news surrounding the Denver Broncos, including their quarterback dilemmas, continued success of the defense, and where they'll most likely fare in the AFC West this season. We'll wrap up with some NFL discussion as well for those of you who couldn't be bothered with the Denver Broncos and discuss the best AFC team to the throne, the New England Patriots, some major storylines in the NFC like the Zeke Elliott suspension, the possible return of the Seahawks to dominance, and Aaron Rodgers' mustache. Ian was incredibly gracious to join the show in such a busy time for anyone working in the NFL. You can find his writing at milehighreport.com and follow him on Twitter. He's at Ian St. Clair. That's I-A-N-S-T-C-L-A-I-R. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Ian St. Clair. He's a columnist for SB Nation's Mile High Report and co-host of the Mile High Report radio podcast. Ian, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you? I'm great, John. Getting ready to start the Broncos season and NFL football here in a couple of days. So things are looking up. 
Certainly very exciting and always optimism coming into an NFL season, no matter what team you may be, except we could probably cross the Jets off from that list this year. There's usually one or two teams that you don't really have to give them much credit as far as what they might do in the playoffs, unfortunately for them. And we will touch on some Denver Broncos stuff, obviously, and even some NFL things for people that don't really care too much about our beloved Denver Broncos. But before we get into that, I wanted to turn back the clocks a little bit just for what you're up to living the life as a sports writer for more than a decade. You've worked for the newspaper, which I also do as well. We're a little bit old school, I guess, unfortunately, in some people's eyes, especially maybe the younger generation coming up. But I was wondering if you might be able to give a Cliff Notes version of sorts of how you started in sports media to where you got to now. Well, I realized that a rather early age, probably middle school, that I wasn't going to be an athlete that would make money playing sports. So I realized then that I could make money writing about sports. So I I always knew that I loved to write and I always had the confidence that I was a decent enough writer. So why not combine the two and find a way to still get paid for it? So I, I was able to do that around middle school. And then once I got into college, I, at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley. I wrote for the student newspaper. I started off as a sports editor and worked my way up to news editor. I interned at the Fort Collins Coloradoan, where I was able to cover the Broncos for two years. And then I got a full-time job um, with the Wyoming Tribune Eagle in Cheyenne. was there for close to six years, almost seven years, got hired as a news editor in Loveland, Colorado at the Reporter Herald. And I was laid off from newspapers, got into internet marketing, created a Broncos blog after my wife and sister uh, prodded me enough to finally do it. And here I am now at Mile High Report. And here we are. Is there a favorite Broncos moment that sticks out to you, whether that comes as a fan or as someone who also has gotten to cover the team as well? The number one moment uh, is definitely the helicopter um, from Super Bowl 32. Um, Still thinking about it now gives me chills and hearing Scott Hastings and Dave Logan's call on the radio. Um. And then Dave Logan's call when the pass got knocked down by John Mobley on fourth down and Broncos fans and the organization realized a dream coming true that never thought was going to happen. Um, So those two moments uh, on a personal anecdote, uh, it was in that moment I was in high school and my mom grew up a Broncos fan and I looked, I, I still remember this. I looked over at her and I, I could see how, how happy she was, but also wishing that her father was able to, to see this and be a part of it too, because he was a huge reason why she became a Broncos fan. So um, that moment will always stick with me. As a writer, there's two moments when, the, when Gary Kubiak was looking for a defensive coordinator in 2000. 14 or 15 um, 
I wrote a story about Wade Phillips, how it made complete. He was the guy that Gary Kubiak and the Broncos needed to hire. So I wrote a story saying that, and I get a tweet from the handle at son of bum. And I, I double take and I say, no, no. And he said, what a great story it was. And that I should be his agent. (laughs) And then he followed me. So that was a cool moment. And then there is a recent one when I was uh, at training camp just uh, a month ago and I was standing behind on the, the north side by the parking lot of the facility watching the no-fly zone going through its work to get ready for practice. And Steve Atwater walks over and he starts watching the practice. And I was able to take a video of one of the greatest safeties to ever play the football, to ever play in the NFL, watching the no-fly zone. I just thought that was a really cool moment. I know you've wanted to be and enjoy being a columnist and getting to write about the Broncos and sharing your opinions. And since you live in Colorado, you have the opportunity to get to hang out at their facilities at different times throughout the year from working so close to players. And even from your days back working with the newspaper, how much fun is it for you to find stories that might not be those mainstream ones where you'll talk to, say, a third-string quarterback or a player that might not necessarily get the ink that does, in turn, usually end up making some great stories that get to be told? That's what, what drives me. Because with so many people covering the team, you want to find a way to stand out. And having that experience that I have allows me to to see things that maybe younger journalists and storytellers may not find or see so that, that that's what drives me and I, I was able to to do a story on Khalif Raymond a year ago when he was starting to to get a rapport with Paxton Lynch going in practice which led to big plays and hooting and hollering from the guys on the sidelines or even on the field and from the fans up on the bump on the left side of the practice field. Um, so absolutely. That, that's what, that's what drives me to, to continue to do this is to find ways to not, not only make myself stand out, but mile high report. And um, I'll always try to find those stories and angles that, that people may not see because that's having the ability to, to do this like I have been. Um, I want to be able to give fans something that benefits them too. Like, the, like they feel that they benefited from something that I wrote. So that, that will always drive me. You mentioned you are a third-generation Broncos fan, and I don't think we'll need to give the listeners any more proof of that. But if they are looking for that, I recently saw that you did celebrate your seventh wedding anniversary. So congratulations on that, obviously. And I'm also interested to know regarding that, how you managed to get the Broncos into your wedding vows with your now wife. So that's a fun story. Um, it, it, it started off as a joke with our officiant where we had her write our vows and she was the one who actually dropped it in there. And my wife loved the idea and, she knows how how much the Broncos mean to me, but also to my family. And 
it was it was the perfect little spice of humor for such a serious moment. So it was a sign of how open she was to me doing all of this and how receptive she's been to how crazy my life will be over the next 17 weeks. So it, it, it's something that I, I won't ever forget. So I, it, it still means a lot that she agreed to do that. Here is to many, many more of those, because as you mentioned, this gig does get quite busy, especially around this time of year. And for the Broncos, a busy week. It's something that seems to happen now more frequently with this team. I still remember quite vividly the Christmas morning-esque feeling of when John Elway made the move to get Peyton Manning several years ago, and it was almost like it was going to be a completely new team and a completely new experience. And it ended up being so, of course, with him winning Super Bowl 50 and riding off into the sunset. And I guess giving us something to rest our hats on for the next several years, the way things are looking. And there's so much to even start with since quarterbacks are so important to the NFL. I guess we can start with the decision to bring back Brock Osweiler into the fold. We, of course, know Brock left for the Texans for a little bit more money, didn't really perform as well as he would have hoped for, was sent to the Browns, didn't even play a snap before getting released and now coming back home to Denver. On the human side of things, he's already mentioned this. Many players have mentioned this, that they're welcoming him back with open arms His wife is incredibly ecstatic that the family gets to come back home in a way to play with the Denver Broncos. But of course, as what's happening with this team now, we get immediate outrage when decisions like this are made. And it seems like every decision they make has some sort of outrage. When this was initially announced, what was your main reaction for Brock Osweiler returning back to the Denver Broncos? I laughed because I thought it was a joke. (laughs) <laughs> but then I realized that it was serious. And a funny story, I was sitting on a train going through the Royal Gorge Canyon along the Arkansas River. So I, I really didn't get the, the out, I didn't feel the outrage because I was on a train. I, I just thought it was an interesting moment, to put it one way, I guess, interesting. Um, I tweeted that Life always comes full circle, but no one saw this circle coming. I, I I think when you look at it on a zoomed-in focus, it makes total sense because despite how obsessed this fan base is with third-string quarterbacks, and this is the latest example of it with Kyle Sloter, there wasn't any way this organization was going to go with Kyle Sloter as the backup quarterback. So as soon as Brock Osweiler became available, it made total sense. And it shows what a boss move it was for John Elway, which was his second such move in a couple of days to get a fifth round pick for Ty Sambrilo. I mean, that's, I mean, that's basically highway robbery. And then to go back and get the quarterback, he wanted all along to be the apparent, the heir apparent to Peyton Manning for pennies compared to what he was going to get a year and a half ago makes total sense. He knows the offense. He knows Mike McCoy. He's had success. 
I would venture an argument that he's had more success than the current starter for the Broncos. But it, on that level, it makes sense. But when you take a, a more broad focus and zoom out, it, it, I think it just adds to the confusion of the quarterback situation because now instead of two guys who need reps in practice, you have three. And what happens come week six when Paxton Lynch is healthy? Do, do you keep Brock Osweiler or do you activate Paxton Lynch? Of course, a lot of that will depend on how the start of the season goes and how the Broncos are playing, especially offensively, because most everyone knows the defense will show up. So it, it, that will depend on their record at the time and what they do with the quarterback situation. Do they go to Brock Osweiler? Trevor Simeon struggles. So it, I think it just adds to the confusion and questions than it does give clarity and answers. Right. In keeping with the offense, this will end up being a little bit of a loaded question, but we know that Denver does have weapons, both at the wide receiver position and then what they've shown at the running back position, really not only just this year, but in the past several decades, they always seem to have had a successful running game, starting with what Mike Shanahan was able to do. Now bringing in Jamal Charles for a little bit more of that veteran mindset. I don't know what he'll be able to show on the field, but the running game hasn't been too much of a problem if the offensive line has been able to block for it. And that's been the biggest red flag for the past couple seasons now is if the line can block both the quarterback and both the running backs to help with that game, the wide receivers will hopefully do their jobs and we'll go from there. Is there a prediction you have of how you think the offense might fare with all the quarterback questions that still have to be answered and will be as the season goes on i think it's until i see evidence to the contrary and it's something that i haven't seen in a year it's something that i didn't see in training camp and something that i didn't see in the preseason this is the same offense the same story that we saw in 2016 and until there is evidence that's what my prediction is, because no matter how how good the offensive line does its job, you need to have a quarterback that has the ability to test the field, to go to the middle of the field, to not just go down to their first read on a check down. And that's not something that we've seen over the course, at least in my eyes, of training camp and preseason from Trevor Simeon. He looks like the same quarterback. I, I don't know how successful this offense is going to be. I, I think my co-host on my podcast that you mentioned, Adam Alnati, brought up was it's a work in progress. So we'll see how they do against the Chargers. I, I think the Chargers' defense is going to be an incredible test because they have two pass rushers who are going to be able to get after Trevor Simeon with Joey Bosa and Melvin Ingram. And then you have Gus Bradley as their new defensive coordinator, who listeners may remember that name, not just as the Jacksonville Jaguars head coach, but as the defensive coordinator who helped bring to life the Legion of Boom up in Seattle. I think it's going to be an incredible test for this offense to start off the season on Monday night. And I don't know if they're going to be able to pass it, but we'll see what happens. 
hitting on the defense, if all that will become true, which it seems incredibly likely that it will, it will be another season where the defense is asked to do much more than many defenses will be in the National Football League to keep Denver in games, which is something that they've shown that they can do. But we alluded to the fact that the fans sometimes have outrage. We just recently saw this once TJ Ward was released. Players were unhappy. Twitter was unhappy. TJ Ward continues to be unhappy. But it might not be as unhappy as a scenario as people are pegging it to be because we have seen a lot of great light come from Justin Simmons, who is slated to probably take over for TJ Ward. He's had a great preseason and is looking to add to the defense, which in a way could be even better than they were with TJ Ward. Should we be outraged that he was released in the manner of which he was, or is this something that in time will just sort of get relaxed and the defense will continue to remain incredibly great? I think the way you ended that is the way fans need to look at it. The way that it was handled, it's the way it happens. It's how it happens in the real world. It's a part of the business, and it may not be a part of the game of football that people like, but it comes with the territory. And I think when you look at how Justin Simmons has performed from OTAs up through training camp now in the preseason, I don't think there's any doubt the defense is going to be better because you now have somebody who is in his natural position in Justin Simmons as a free safety. And I think strong safety is the more natural position for Darian Stewart. So Darian Stewart will, will, will shift over to the T.J. Ward aspect of the defense. So he'll be able to, to help out in the run game. And now you, you have a guy who can cover and make plays as the free safety in Justin Simmons, which he has done throughout the course of the offseason. And that will help the defense get even better because it not only helps with the run defense because Justin Simmons can – is a, is a great tackler. He has a nose to finding the running back when he comes through the holes, but he's great in coverage and he will make highlight real interceptions, which helps Akeem Tlaib and Chris Harris and Bradley Roby. So I don't think there's any doubt the defense is going to be better, but then you add in Will Parks, who will be the dime back for the secondary and Jamal Carter for all the raving that fans have done about Kyle Floater. To me, the best player on the field in the preseason was Jamal Carter. And if you give me the choice of Kyle Sloter on the active roster or Jamal Carter, I'm going to pick Jamal Carter every day of the week and twice on Sunday. And it's going to help the defense get even better. As he, as Carter has shown, he is all over the field making tackles, whether it's as a safety or as a, a linebacker, if need be. That's huge for the defense. So. To me, there is no doubt this is going to make the defense better. It's younger, and fans need to remember that T.J. Ward hasn't played since early in training camp with his hamstring injury. So he hasn't played any of the preseason games, and I think the best the defense looked was against San Francisco in the second preseason game, and it looked pretty good against Chicago too, but 
this defense has not missed a beat. And I think it's only going to continue to get better if Justin Simmons continues to get experience and get his legs under him as a safety. But as I'm sure you'll agree, the key for the defense is going to be the running game and how the interior defensive line does in stopping running backs and opposing offenses running the football this season. Right. The no fly zone, of course, was its epic self, but the numbers for the running defense are ones that we probably actually don't even want to look back on from 2016. Not great is what we can say about that. And it's actually going to be fascinating in a way these next couple of seasons because we saw the legion of boom come onto the scene and how dominant they were able to be but then go through this whirlwind and and downturn in a way because the team wasn't performing on the offensive side the way they thought it should some of their key players went to other teams for more money and broke up some of the core and now going into this season it seems like they might be getting back onto that track and looking to get back to that legion of boom that fear defense that people grew and fell in love with when they won the super bowl and and denver might fall into that same scenario von miller's going to be around for the long haul which is great but if the offense doesn't perform the way that the defense thinks it should, there are some vocal guys within the locker room that might come out and, and voice their negative opinions toward what the offense is doing, and that might not be the best for the locker room. So we'll definitely be able to see how that shapes up, not only for this year, but in the years to come. I think it's good to have a guy like Von Miller to calm things down a little bit, at least in the public eye. He's very good at, at drawing the attention away from what might be the troubles with the team and he should continue to do that in the years to come as well and to draw that back a little bit and to draw in the listeners and fans of the NFL away from our fandom of the Broncos as far as the AFC West goes Denver has been in the conversation to win the division the past several years. They've done so for the past several years as well, but we see these teams now that are coming after them and have already done so with the Chiefs last year, Oakland coming onto the scene, Denver unfortunately probably having the worst quarterback in the division to call a spade a spade. How do you see the AFC West playing out this year as the season progresses? That's an interesting question because I I'm not sold on the Raiders. I, I, I think they don't have a defense and I think they're going to, they're going to drop off somewhat offensively. And I, I don't know how much they're going to get out of Marshawn Lynch. Um, I, I think that's the Marshawn Lynch and the defense is the key to the Raiders. I think the chiefs are the chiefs. Um, I, they'll find a way to stay in games because of their defense and because Alex Smith, doesn't do anything. He rarely takes risks. He'll run it when he gets the opportunity to. Um, but I don't think they're a real threat come the playoffs. They may be in the hunt to win the division. I think the team to watch for is the Chargers. I, and I think they would have been there last year had they not been ravaged by injuries. If they can stay healthy, I think with Philip Rivers and Keenan Allen and Antonio Gates and then Melvin Gordon and the, as the running back, I, I really do think the Chargers are the team to watch. And I think perhaps the biggest addition that was made over the course of the offseason in the division was them getting Gus Bradley to be the defensive coordinator. So 
if they can stay healthy, I I think the Chargers are the team to watch. I, as I said earlier on, I until I see something I haven't seen yet, this is the same story that that fans saw a year ago with the Broncos, and I think they're going to be in the eight and eight to nine and seven window. Is there a team in the AFC that you think has the best chance of competing with or potentially taking down the defending Super Bowl champion New England Patriots? I think it's it, it, there's no doubt it's the Pittsburgh Steelers because they have the offense to do it. They have the weapons in the running game and in the passing game. And I think they now have a better defense, at least, Pittsburgh fans hope of containing Tom Brady and Brandon cooks and Gronkowski. Um, obviously new England didn't get helped with Julian Edelman's injury. So that takes away a huge security blanket for Brady. Um, but to me, there's no question. It's the Pittsburgh Steelers. If, if Ben, if Ben Mofflesberger can stay healthy, you know that Le'Veon Bell is going to make plays. You know Antonio Brown is going to make plays. But now they also have Martavius Bryant back from suspension. Um, if any offense can keep pace with Tom Brady, it's Big Ben and Le'Veon Bell and Antonio Brown. I think it's a safe bet to say that there will probably be more fireworks in the NFC than there will be in the AFC as far as teams that could make some noise this year. We're going to, of course have Aaron Rodgers going on a potential middle finger tour for the doubters. We have the Falcons who want to prove that last year was a fluke and that they are deserving of getting back to and winning the Super Bowl. The Seahawks look to be like a team that might come together a little bit better on the offensive side, and we know what's going on in Dallas with the Zeke Elliott suspension and what they'll be able to do in the NFC East. Is there a storyline or storylines that excite you the most as far as the other side for the NFC and what we might be able to see this season? I think it's the teams that may surprise people. And I I think one of those teams is the New York Giants, who always seem to give Jason Garrett and the Cowboys fits. Especially with the addition of Brandon Marshall, it adds another weapon for Eli Manning, and it gives another potential wrinkle that defensive coordinators have to keep in mind. Instead of just Odell Beckham, you add in Brandon Marshall. Um, I think the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are an interesting storyline with young Jameis Winston, but now also a former Bronco and TJ Ward being the veteran who has had success in the NFL to bring that leadership to the defense of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, which is a huge aspect of that potential organization's success. I, I think in terms of storylines, as long as he's in the NFL, it will always be Aaron Rodgers because you'll want to know what facial hair he grows for the week, but also because he's just a heck of a player to watch. And until there's no time left on the clock, the Packers were, are always going to be in the hunt to win the game. And I, I think now that they they've added Martellus Bennett um, makes makes them an even better offensive team than they've been the last couple of years, and they've been pretty good. So I do agree with you that the, I, I think the 
the better storylines this season are going to come out of the, the NFC just because I think there's more parity. The teams are closer together. Um, I think the, I think the, the one aspect to watch is if the Cowboys drop off a little bit this year with Dak Prescott going into a second year because the sophomore slump for quarterbacks is very real. So we'll see if he's impacted by that. It'll be interesting to watch. You get the Seahawks getting some depth defensively with the moves they've made. The Falcons with their new offensive coordinator, Steve Skarkeesian, taking over from Mike Shanahan. It's it's going to be fun to watch the NFC this year, I think. Well, nothing would say sports show than offering some closing predictions to wrap things up with you, but I won't ask for what you think the Broncos record will be to circle back to them to end things, but where you might see them finishing in the AFC West, what we might see from them as a whole this season, trying to compete with some of the teams. I think they're going to fiddle, they're going to finish in the middle of the pack. I, I think eight and eight, nine and seven, maybe 10 and six. If they're 10 and six, they have a potential to finish for the, the final wild card spot, but I, it, it, the key to the Broncos season is how it starts the first quarter of the season. And if they start off one and three, as I think they will, it, it's going to be a rough season because their season, their season ends with some incredibly tough games and quite a few on the road. So how they start is key. Well, it's only fitting that they would go down that path since that's what happened when John Elway wrapped up his two Super Bowls. It was several years, second in the AFC West, third in the AFC West, eight and eight, nine and seven, seven and nine, until Peyton Manning graced Denver, Colorado, and things changed for a couple of seasons as well. So I, I guess, fingers crossed, a, a miracle like that comes around or the development of these quarterbacks continues to improve as well and, and Denver can get back to where fans want them to be and the outrage can be kept to a minimum. The last thing I have for you before I let you go, I know you have this on your Twitter and some information about yourself, that a life philosophy question you like to ask is, are you an Eeyore or a Tigger? So I would be remiss if I didn't ask what your answer is to that as well. I am always a Tigger. I am always bouncing around. If I had a tail, I would constantly bouncing around. And Tigger is one of my favorite time characters. Any book, TV show, movie, you name it. Tigger is the best. Excellent. Well, Ian, you're going to probably need that energy very shortly once the NFL season kicks off this upcoming weekend. Thanks so much for your time to recap a little bit about what we've seen from the Denver Broncos and preview what we will see with them for this season, as well as some other things for the NFL. Looking forward to the work you'll be able to provide with Mile High Report throughout the season and keeping us in tune with the Broncos and the NFL as a whole. Continued success with that, and hopefully we can catch up again down the road as well. Absolutely, and thank you for having me on anytime. It was, it was a pleasure to be on with you, John. Thanks again to Ian for jumping on the show. We'll now move to another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris.
Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court in high school, sports editors for our college newspaper that's no longer in literal print, and hosts of the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. Since Joe usually sees more movies in the year than the 52 weeks within it, he now holds the reins here. And don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films, just with a better breakdown of what will be in store if you do so, and with Joe's analogy of the film compared to the sports world at the end. This week, Joe will break down Logan Lucky, which Rotten Tomatoes describes as two brothers trying to reverse a family curse who set out to execute an elaborate robbery during the legendary Coca-Cola 600 race at the Charlotte Motor Speedway. You can find Joe on Twitter. He's at Duke Mish. That's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupofdashjoe.com. Again, that's cup of dash or hyphen or whatever you'd like to call it, joe.com. Without further ado, here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Barice. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Barice, and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. Steven Soderbergh came out of retirement to make Logan Lucky, another heist film to add to his resume, which includes the Ocean's Trilogy. I really enjoy Oceans 11 and 13. 12 is okay, but ultimately the trilogy is a lot of fun. It has a great ensemble cast, the writing is solid, and the jokes land. Soderbergh once again delved into the heist world with Logan Lucky. Would it pay off? Let's go to the tape. Logan Lucky has many similarities with the Oceans trilogy, but instead of the glitz and glamour of Las Vegas, Logan Lucky is set in the world of NASCAR at Charlotte Motor Speedway in North Carolina. The plot boils down to a family who is cursed with bad luck, and to flip the curse, two brothers and a sister, with the help of friends, go for the big score at one of the biggest races of the year, the Coca-Cola 600. Something Soderbergh does well is bring in a strong cast. Just go back to the Oceans movies where you'll find arguably the biggest ensemble cast in the history of film. While not as star-studded, Logan Lucky also fills its roles with some well-known names and the right ones at that, as the acting is one of the major strengths of the film. Once seen as a meathead, Channing Tatum has now proven to be a quality actor time and time again. I first saw his acting chops in 21 Jump Street, where he showed he could pull off comedy. Then came his dramatic role in Foxcatcher, where he was snubbed for an Oscar nomination. Tatum shines again in Logan Lucky, capturing the West Virginia accent, humor, and physicality of the role, all traits he has perfected as he has grown as an actor. Also, to get it out of the way, or I'll be saying it about every actor, they all nail the accent, humor, and physicality of their roles. Adam Driver, who plays Tatum's brother, also turns in a great performance. He's just a great actor that has proven himself in the small sample size of movies I've seen him in, including Silence and, of course, Star Wars The Force Awakens. I'm very excited to see the next chapter in Kylo Ren's story in The Last Jedi. Daniel Craig is my favorite James Bond, and just an all-around great actor. That doesn't change here. He just switches from the swagger of Bond to a tattooed convict. The man could obviously act, but he takes this character to a place we've never seen Craig go before, which is refreshing. It's nice to see actors go from the role of a lifetime to a very different role in between films. Reports say Craig will be back for his fifth installment of Bond. Here's to hoping he goes off on a high note. 
Also, Riley Keough shines as the sister of Tatum and Driver, who serves as the driver for the group. She has an understated performance where people overlook her intelligence because she's gorgeous. She uses her sexuality to her advantage without overly flaunting it. It was an effective performance and impressive because of the acting talent around her. I think I've made it clear that I enjoyed the acting, even the Joey Logano and Brad Keselowski cameos, but there's a lot of other great things about Logan Lucky. If you've seen other Soderbergh films, especially Ocean's Eleven, you know what they are. There's a great script, vibrant shots, and funny sequences. Exactly what we've come to expect from the great director. What didn't work was the same thing that fell flat in the Oceans movies. Whereas the love interest in Oceans, it's Tatum's relationship with his daughter that doesn't land for Logan Lucky. It's not that the chemistry isn't there. Farrah McKenzie does a great job, but the relationship is so cliché. The daughter loves him, and her parents are divorced, and the father tries to do right but fails. You know the rest. I mean, it's fine when that's the main focus of the film, but it just ends up slowing down the movie. I didn't care about it, because it wasn't necessary. It didn't add or take away from the plot. It was just there. The bottom line, Logan Lucky delivers and is a welcome return for Soderbergh. The acting, script, and direction are great, and ultimately it's a good time. If you like Ocean's Eleven, you'll like Logan Lucky. It's just a different setting. I'll rank this movie as Brett Favre. As in, he retired just like Soderbergh and then came back after a short period. While Favre struggled with the Jets in his first year back, and as much as I hate to admit it, as a Packer fan, he went back to throwing darts when he got to the Vikings. Let's hope Soderbergh can stay on top of his game in future films. Sexy. Check! Uh, check, please. I wasn't planning on ending the show this way, but the sports news life never sleeps. We'll close out the show with America's fastest growing sports segment called Good Try, Good Effort. Here we'll briefly mention some of the instances from throughout the week when a team or a player or a coach meant well but didn't quite meet those expectations. For this week, good try, good effort to the celebrations at WFAN. The famed New York radio station was supposed to spend this calendar year celebrating its 30th year anniversary as a station, the end of year retirement of its Pope in Mike Francesa, and the 10 year anniversary of the popular morning show, Boomer and Carton. But instead of pouring out more champagne, WFAN will instead be pouring over court documents and writing press releases to deal with the arrest of morning host Craig Carton. The FBI brought Craig into custody early Wednesday morning for allegedly running a Ponzi scheme in which he and a business partner used funds from new investors to repay earlier investors, along with other debts, according to the complaint filed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. According to the story in the New York Post, Carton and his business partner ripped off at least $3.6 million from two investors, while on his own, Carton misappropriated another $2 million from one of the same two investors. 
The Post continued saying, quote, the married father of four allegedly forged documents showing purported ticket sale, quote, agreements between his and his partner's entities and concert promoters when none actually existed. Carton turned to the ticket scam in the middle of 2016 as a result of accruing, quote, millions of dollars worth of gambling-related debts to casinos and other third parties, according to court papers. End quote from the New York Post. Ponzi schemes, fraud, lies, as manager Sal Martinella said in Rookie of the Year, holy Christmas! Carton faces up to 45 years in prison, plus more than $5 million in fines if convicted. And to make matters worse, the dialogue from his co-host Boomer Esiason was quite awkward to say the least for Wednesday morning show because Boomer was unaware of the arrest until later in the program. Jokingly saying in the early morning, quote, if you hear me starting the show, that means Numbnuts is under the weather and he's not here. And basically what will be the longest week. Boomer continued referring to the packed radio schedule this week, saying, quote, my partner decides, oh, I don't know. I don't want to show up this morning because I don't feel good. Boomer and his co-host then joked that Carton had, quote, Yankee flu, referring to the Yankees losing 7-6 to the Baltimore Orioles very early into Wednesday morning before the show that day. Oh, no. Oh, God. Oh, help us and save us. Later in the show, however, Boomer was finally brought to speed on the situation and said this, quote, by the way, just a little bit of an announcement. I am now aware of why Craig was not here this morning. Unfortunately, he was arrested this morning. We here at the station, they're aware of it as well. They're cooperating with authorities. I'm taken aback and surprised by it, just like I'm sure everyone else is, end quote. This puts WFAN, unfortunately, in a similar situation of sorts, a more serious situation than they were in 10 years ago when legendary morning host Don Imus referred to the Rutgers women's basketball team as, quote, nappy-headed hoes, and then was promptly fired for that statement. It's going to be quite interesting to see whether WFAN does make any decisions on Carton's behalf before the court system does. Personally, when it comes to Craig Carton, I can only really go based on what I've read and from what I hear of him in small tidbits because I don't live in New York. I don't listen to their morning show and I've heard he's an asshole from some people. I've heard he's a great guy. We do know he's one of Mike Francesa's biggest trolls, even though they share the same airwaves, but he must be doing something right to continue to be on the air as long as he has been. What we can say on the former part, though, is that the morning show does use a clock counting down the days until December 15th, which is the day Mike Francesa is scheduled to hang up his show for good. Now, however, it's Carton's time on the station that might be up before Francesa's even is. Good job, good job. Good 
that's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Friday night. And also be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. You can also find The Bridge on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, or on TuneIn on Wednesdays by searching for Sports Radio America. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dive into Major League Baseball, dabble in the NBA, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.